In the last episode, we looked at religion uh, and how it came about in the American South. And we did this by looking at some broad trends. Again, this is just an overview as a podcast. It doesn't delve into very many specifics. The intent is just to help you to get uh, get a start on these ideas so that you can go out and explore them more on your own. But in this particular episode, what we're going to do is we're going to back up just a little bit, look at uh, religion as it touches the lives of those who were enslaved in the South, the people that were enslaved in the South. And then we're going to look at it as it influences the modern South as well. And part of this is going to be, again, uh, delving into some of the politics of the American South, just in a very broad way, no specifics or anything like that. Um, But that gives you an overview of exactly what this episode will be. Let's get started. Several times in past episodes, I've mentioned religion as it relates to those who were enslaved in the American South. And we looked at things like the fact that uh, these people, if if they converted to Christianity early on, they were freed uh, because of the, you know, the idea of the great chain of being and and things of that nature. But even after that ended, uh, why would they keep converting? And the answer is that religion gave them a sense of hope and it gave them a sense of identity. They felt a connection to some of the stories in the Bible, for example, because they could see themselves in some of those stories. Um, as well, there was the promise of a better afterlife, and these uh, these sorts of stories and these sorts of ideas could appeal to individuals who were immensely suffering in, in this particular life and in this particular circumstance. And so, again, the concepts of Christianity very much appealed to these, um, these people who were in bondage. Um, as well, I've talked about the fact that, uh, you know, the church elevated them it gave them a sense of uh, belonging and a sense of uh, value because initially, before, again, the church slightly reorganized for the sense of patriarchy, um, they felt that they were truly equals and they felt that they had a valuable voice. Um, I would very much encourage you to do some reading, whether it be nonfiction or fiction. Um, Sumon Kidd, I think, does a really great job of capturing some of these ideas in her The Invention of Wings. Uh, she tells uh, you know a story that's partially fiction and partially nonfiction. It's it's based on some real ideas and some real people, uh, but uh, you know clearly she doesn't know exactly what they said. But she does a pretty good idea, uh, idea of capturing again the things that I'm discussing here: the sense of identity, the sense of purpose, um, and this also manifested, by the way, I should say, in in uh, the lives of people like. Nat Turner and uh, the Stoner, you know, rebellion, uh, both with the leader and with the people who followed, um, because that gives these individual uh, individuals again a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, a sense of being inspired by God, a sense of being taken care of by God. Um, this is also something that uh, John Brown uh, discussed in his, you know, his attempt to free slaves. That he was, you know, guided by God and that he had a, a purpose. In, in this sort of sense. So again, religion is woven into the very fabric of the identities of all of these uh, people and their journeys through the South. As a part of that, I want to tackle something that's it's controversial. Let's just go ahead and kind of throw that out there because um, some people are going to listen to this and say, oh, you know, he's advocating or something. A- absolutely not. My goal with, again, this podcast is just to help people to understand, is to get the information out there and is to sort of dig in where I think I can be most useful. So with that context in mind, 
Um, I've already mentioned that some ideas from Africa had uh, been brought over to the New World and that they had manifested in various ways. So we looked at that, for example, with the music section and uh, the stories of you know individuals being able to meet a trickster god, uh, Legba, at the crossroads at midnight and you know, get magic powers and how that was mapped directly onto the devil, um, just kind of like a lot of other things were mapped over uh, Christian ideas as well. That was, again, a particular African idea. But there were others in addition that were you know, brought over. And one of the ones that was brought over, and I'm not going to trace exactly how it happened, but I'll just say that it was brought over and it began to manifest as voodoo. And, you know, people will listen to this and say, oh, voodoo is, you know, absolutely against Christianity and it's, it's the opposite of it. And how in the world could somebody you know, believe or practice uh, voodoo and still call themselves Christian? And that's why I said that this is something of a controversial idea. I'm going to try to explain it as best as I can. And this is not to say that all practitioners of, of voodoo um, fall into this category. Certainly not. But it at least, I think, will help you to understand um, why some people would continue to practice you know, these sorts of things and at the same time, again, call themselves Christians. So in a nutshell, it is this. Think today of medicine, modern medicine. If you get sick, uh, if you get, you know, the let's just say it, the, if you get the coronavirus, you're going to go to the hospital and you're going to trust in modern medicine to be able to help you. They're going to give you, uh, you know, whatever drugs that they have that can help. They're going to give you whatever treatments they may have at that moment that they know can combat it. Um, they've come a long way with that. They've been doing, you know, studies and things of that nature. You're not going to, at any point, I, I, I don't think, um, stop and say, oh, you know, what if this is against God? Now, let me put a caveat on that. There are some denominations that absolutely do think that, and they do not want to use medicine because they do think that medicine goes against God's will. And so they don't want vaccines. They don't want to take medicine. They don't want to take even Tylenol because if, you know, if they have a headache, that's God's will. So I'm going to exclude that group for purposes of this conversation. And I just want to concentrate on the people who you know don't think that way. While you're in the hospital, you're going to you know trust in modern medicine to help you. And you know if you um, are an ardent believer, you're probably going to pray in addition to that. At, again, no point are you going to think, well, this is contrary to God's will. That approach and that philosophy is the same thing as what um, some practitioners of voodoo think of of their their magic as um they don't see it as a contradiction why would they because you know if those tools have been put here they see it as okay i can use these tools because god has provided me these tools so they see them again as tools much as in the same way that a good portion of believers see modern medicine that is simply one tool that god has provided for people to be able to uh, heal their bodies and so that, from that perspective, again, I'm not asking you to agree with it by any stretch of the imagination, but I am attempting to explain it. And I think that you can draw a parallel there uh, for why practitioners of voodoo would still see themselves as Christians um, in spite of the fact that you know other people might condemn such a practice. Okay, let's move away from that because this is going to be kind of a, a variety of different things that I'm going to talk about in this particular episode. Let's move away from that and just kind of acknowledge that after the American Civil War, um, again, the church splintered. It, it turned into you know various denominations and uh, especially, again, in the Baptist faith, 
um, you'll see churches even to the present split. You know, if a certain group of people inside of a church begin to disagree with the approach that the church is taking, they will just go and found their own church. Um, even in the city in which I live, uh, Concord, North Carolina, I can think of several churches that have splintered off from other churches and, you know, gone and started their own. They get their own building or something like that. So this is happening after the American Civil War. And apart from this, though, religion begins to really stabilize. Um, some of the, you know, the early things like the, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and so forth and so on, um, have already occurred. There's, you know, been the American Revolution. We get to the American Civil War. Again, people are stable in their faith. Uh, they go, they tend to go to the same churches that their parents went to and that their great grandparents went to, and and so forth and so on. Um, but what I want to really zoom in on here is something that I had again mentioned in the race slides before. And this is the role that churches played during the civil rights movement. And uh, that ties into the identity of people like you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a, a pastor. And that cadence of speech, that, that ability to stand up and to, you know, to speak to the crowd and to understand the crowd and to be able to appeal to the crowd was something that he used really his entire professional career. Um, in fact, his I Have a Dream speech, he... he didn't necessarily want to get up and want to get up and do this speech all over again. Um, he had done speeches like this before, but he sort of understood at that moment that this was a speech that he could he could give and that would help you know draw the crowd in. And so he adjusted. And I would I would say that, that adjustment comes from his level of confidence as a, a pastor um, and as a public speaker. So you know again there are deep roots between the role of the church and the uh, those who were activists during this particular time period. But it goes further than this. The church itself acted as, a, the, the African-American church at the time, acted as a buffer for their congregation because as long as they were in good standing in the community, um, the, the leader of that church could oftentimes help to negotiate uh, better treatment for individuals who may have been accused of a crime or who may be in some trouble with the larger white community because these leaders were respected and seen as exactly what I just said, as negotiators. And this is one of the reasons why, as you, you know, if you start to read into the history, you may find that there were some leaders of African-American churches at this time period who did not want to join the American Civil Rights Movement. And, the, you know, that might be surprising. Like, why would they not want to? Well, it's because they knew that if they did, they were essentially trading off the goodwill that they might have in the community and the ability to help their congregation um, versus, you know, an uncertain future. And so some leaders, again, resisted this. Other leaders fully embraced it. It just depends on the person. So that provides a little more information on the role of, again, uh, African-American leaders inside the church during the civil rights movement and how the church interacted with this movement. I want to actually jump from there to, again, a variety of other things. Uh, I want to talk about, of all things now, snake handling. <laughs> if you've never heard of snake handling before, this is a real thing that occurs. I have not personally witnessed it, but it's one of those things that you, you hear rumors of. And if you probably know the right person and you push hard enough, you might be able to find a community of snake handlers. Snake handling is a belief. Uh, sometimes it's associated with the Pentecostal church, other times just, you know, with uh, fundamentalist Baptist, uh, definitely a Protestant idea. 
that is reflected in that close personal direct uh, relationship that you, that a person might have with God. And the snake handling idea comes from a passage in the Bible that essentially says that they will handle serpents and that, that God will protect them. So the idea is for people to handle poisonous snakes, to perhaps be bitten by those snakes, and uh, not to seek medical attention when they are bitten by those snakes. Again, the, the idea there is that God will protect them, that God will prevent them from you know, passing away or being adversely affected by this venom. And that will therefore prove that that person uh, is chosen of God. This follows somewhat from um, ideas of the elect and of uh, predestination. It's not as as direct as that, uh, I would say, because you know this is something of a, a more uh, of a looser interpretation along the lines of uh, good deeds. You know, this is just proof that you're favored by God, not that necessarily that you're destined, you know, for heaven or something like that. Um, so I, I don't know that it's strictly Calvinist in that sense, but. It is something that, again, occurs in the South. And if you've never heard of it before, I would encourage you, you know, go and look it up. Um, you know, look it up and, and just understand this idea a little bit more because it's it's out there. It's it's part of the American South and it's part of the um, the dedication that people in the American South feel for um, for their faith. Now we get into something that is fairly complicated, but I'm going to try to... Uh, explain it as best as possible. I mentioned politics before and mentioned this also in the, the race uh, portion, the very last episode. But again, the American South uh, was traditionally uh, associated with the, Demo the Democrats. Uh, the really hardcore among them would call themselves Dixiecrats. I believe that Strom Thurmond was a really good example of this. Um, he served you know, as a United States senator for many, many different terms, and he led this party and was actively involved in this party. Um, and the Republicans were associated with the, the North. And it's really the civil rights movement itself that helped them flip-flop this approach. Um, when we get to the enactment of the civil rights legislation after the assassination of uh, John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, um, you know, we, when we get to LBJ and he's, he's signing this information into law, he's supposed to have quipped and, and there's no verification of this. We have lost the South for a generation. And if he did say that he was immeasurably wrong because he didn't lose it for a generation. He lost it permanently because at this point the South began to feel betrayed because he was of the democratic party. Um, and because of this, they began to sort of flock away. Um, the Republican Party began to appeal to them. It became, you know, sort of a party of conservative ideals, um, whereas before, again, it had been Lincoln's party, um, and Lincoln was, you know, sort of leading the charge loosely, so to speak, against slavery. Um, and so the de the Democrats, on the other hand, uh, began to appeal to those who saw uh, more liberal ideas, and you know, because they they said, oh wow, look, they're enacting legislation that is tied to giving more rights to underrepresented communities. And so the people who had more liberal ideas began to move in that particular direction. And essentially the outcome was more or less a quick flip-flop. And there are some other factors tied into this as well. But again, this is just an overview and it gives you uh, something of an idea. So for those people who say, you know, well, the Republican Party is a party of Lincoln, yes and no, it is, but only in name. 
because the ideas and ideals of those parties again have flip-flopped again essentially the labels have changed and that's worth mentioning and worth remembering okay that's factor number one now let's look at a couple of other factors okay the thing i'm going to address now is again very very complicated and it's literally hundreds of years long as the story goes but i'm going to try to condense it as much as possible uh it essentially boils down to the idea of uh, you know very conservative ideas and religious ideas versus more liberal style ideas if you go listen to the english 231 podcast that i have and you specifically listen to the episodes on taylor edwards and benjamin franklin um and thomas Paine, you can see that those ideas start to form really during the the you know 17th century going into the 18th century and and so forth and so on it starts as kind of the enlightenment of uh, i can rationalize my way to anything as as ben franklin put it and edwards and taylor on the other hand you know these classic fire and brimstone type of preachers uh one of them uh, edwards especially saying you know your your foot is on the slope it's going to slide any second god is angry at you uh it never really explains why god is angry he just says you know god is angry at you he, he is wrathful with you and he's going to throw you down the slope if you're not careful and these ideas are running more or less at the same time um there's you know couple of years in between but more or less at the same time uh, and those ideas are handed down into the present in various other ways as well uh, whereas the enlightenment kept you know saying well we can rationalize our way to anything yeah, isaac newton i i can understand things if i just think hard enough uh it was passed on and passed on and passed on and then we get to modernism and modernism begins to say okay you know we've been trying really hard for a long time to rationalize our way to things and that maybe hasn't worked out so well uh, modernism starts to witness some of the horrors that emerge in the 20th century world war one world war two the dropping of an atomic bomb on your know, cities and being able to destroy uh hundreds of thousands of human lives and with just one push of a button and the fact that you know we have uh nuclear weapons hanging over our heads for for a long period of time and so they're saying you know well okay we can try to rationalize our way to this stuff but um human beings are really complicated and uh, one of the great examples of this of course would be somebody like sigmund freud sigmund freud said that you know human beings are massive contradictions we have this desire to create things and we also have this desire to destroy things um one of my personal hobbies is i like to put together jigsaw puzzles and i i can tell you it's to me just as fun to put it together as it is to just break it all apart <laughs> if you've ever built legos before you probably know that feeling too you spend all this time putting it together and then you you know uh, break it uh, i don't know it's it's interesting and so that's what segment freud is concentrating on he's saying that you know people are uh contradictory that they are they can be hypocritical that they are there is no truth there is only a paradox um people are allowed or capable i guess is a better word capable of doing immeasurable good but they're also capable of doing immeasurable harm and that's again the position that modernism starts with now we have by the way modernism and art which is not quite the same thing they take some of the philosophies and they apply it to art and the creation of art you know people like t.s Eliot are you know, creating poetry um you have uh, you know guernica that's being created which is a testament to everything i just said a second ago it, it, it tends to not capture the, the best of humanity it actually captures the worst of humanity 
but it only sort of sketches it out and forces the reader to engage with it or the viewer to engage with the, the painting itself. This begins to emerge at the time. Again, there's you know this contradiction in understanding, but it gets a little bit more complicated than that as well. So how does it get more complicated? Well, the answer is actually quite simple, and it does come directly from even some of my own personal experiences. When I went to grad school, um, I attended for linguistics. That's really my focus. Um, I focused on you know, the cultural application of linguistics. It's actually my degrees in applied linguistics. Um, I also have something of a background in, in philosophy, so you know, I, I tend to bring those types of ideas to, um, to my classes and how I present that information. But in those classes, oftentimes we had an overlap, both with the philosophy class, which I think is more common sense, uh, commonsensical rather than the linguistics classes. But uh, some of those English slash linguistics classes that I had to take, I had theology students in there. And the reason is, is because the activity that we were doing in reading text and engaging with text was the exact same activity that theology students do as well. They just have, they tend to have a single text and then they have other texts about that text. They have, you know, their holy text. And so the activity boils down to this, and this is the application of modernism and by extent, I would say, you know, some application of enlightenment ideas as well. When you read a text, how do you find the truth? And so, you know, we'll just take it kind of in a broad way and then we'll make it more specific in a second. Is the meaning in the words? Because if the meaning is just in the words, then this completely excludes everything else, the author included. Or is the meaning in the author's intent? Can the author really even understand what the author is writing about? And as a quick example, uh, George A. Romero made Night of the, of the Living Dead. He just wanted to make a horror film. He said that that was his intent, and he swears up and down that that's all he was doing. But uh, Night of the Living Dead can easily be read as a metaphor of white apprehension of the American Civil Rights Movement, that the zombies themselves represent um, the uprising of African Americans against white citizens. And quite frankly, if you map it on in that way, and then you think of it in that way, um, the movie <laughs> becomes very interesting, and it very clearly is that kind of metaphor. But Romero swears up and down that's not what he made. So does the author even understand always the intent that they have in creating something? So we have, you know, the words on the page or the, the film on the, in the can. We have the, you know, the person creating it. Do we have the reader response? Is it the reader who finds the meaning in this? For example, I just said that, you know, this is how Night of the Living Dead could be interpreted. And my interpretation disagrees with the director's interpretation. Who's right? Me or the director? Um, and I, I think that that's open to debate. Then there's also the expert, right? So this would be the person who's is extensively studied these things. This is the person that comes in and says, you know, I, I've read all of Romero's biography. I've watched all of his movies. I've studied the history surrounding it. And I have to tell you, yes, indeed, this is a metaphor of whether Romero knows it or not, right? So now we have four different ways that we can approach meaning. The text, the author, the reader, and the expert. That applies to the Bible. We have the text, which is compounded, by the way, by translation. What is the best translation? Is it King James Version? Is it the um, Gutenberg Version? Does it, you know, any of the variety of uh, versions, the um, New International Version? Um, we have the author, which would be the person who sat down to write it. We have you know, all the people in the Old Testament, uh, all the people in the New Testament, which, again, is compounded by the fact now we have to 
you know, put God in there as well. Is did the person who wrote it was that person properly inspired by God, or did the person misunderstand God's message? So that creates a whole other level. And we have the reader. This is you know the person that, that you or I who is reading the Bible and saying you know, like this is what I take away from it. And we have the expert. This could be like a, a Christian apologist. It could be your pastor. It could be the guy who's been you know reading the book for thirty years of his life and he's studied all the background and cultural history and context and so forth and so on. So you can see that there are a variety of different ways that we could approach the Bible. And that's one of the ways in which modernism begins to argue that we should engage with text. And that creates a problem. So what is that problem? Well, that problem is simply this. And I've, I've carefully constructed this episode to try to lead to this kind of moment. All the people I was talking about just a second ago, the, you know, the very fundamentalist type of individuals, they see the Bible in very literal terms. They think that they should handle poisonous snakes. They think that there was a, a literal boat um, that you know two of every kind of creature got onto. They think that there was a literal giant fish that you know swallowed a human being and then spit the human being back up. And they think this in um, in contradiction to perhaps reading these as allegories or reading them uh, you know for. Uh, some kind of moral lesson that they're trying to teach. So, you know, rather than seeing Aesop's fables as um, stories that teach a lesson, they would see them as more literal. Like there's a fox and he was literally trying to get the grapes um, because that's a whole other level that we can deal with. So when modernism comes along and it says, you know, there are actually a bunch of different ways we could approach text and here are some of them. Um, these individuals are not going to agree with that. They're not going to see it in the same way. And there's already a line of thinking that runs through the American character that, again, dates back to people like Jonathan Edwards. Um, and then, uh, again, on the other side, with the modernists, you have somebody like Benjamin Franklin that would date back to with the Enlightenment. And so that, that conflict begins to really emerge at this time. So you have modernists arguing this, and then you have the emergence of a reaction to it, which would be fundamentalism. And fundamentalism says, you know, no, absolutely not. All the stuff that I just explained a second ago is, is just foolishness. There's only one truth. And if you study hard enough, you can find that truth. Never mind all the other stuff. Never mind, you know, author intent and, you know, what a God intend and, and so forth and so on. It doesn't matter. The truth is there. You just have to look for it hard enough and then you'll find it. You know, don't obfuscate by, you know, developing all these other ways that you could approach it is just one thing. The truth is only just one thing. And this becomes a conflict. And the conflict, you know, begins to take shape around things like evolution. Um, whereas uh, a modernist may argue, yes, okay, we can we can have evolution, and evolution is not a contradiction necessarily of God's word. Um, and that, by the way, when I say that, that's sometimes news to people. Uh, they're like, wait a minute, no, I, you know, it is a contradiction of God's word. But it's not. It, it is in some denominations, but it's not in all denominations. The Catholic Church, for example, uh, teaches evolution because evolution is not seen as a contradiction. Other authors, I would say, people like uh, Emerson would have said, you know, my, my faith is strengthened by this because now I understand the mechanism by which God created the universe. So there are other people who don't see it as a contradiction. They don't see it as either or. They see it as, okay, these things work hand in hand. So again, modernists are not anti-Christian. They're not not Christian. They are Christians. Uh, not all of them, but some of them are Christians. And they uh, they see the truth in this way. 
Whereas fundamentalists would say, absolutely not. The earth is, you know, a young earth. Uh, the accounts vary sometimes 6,000 years, sometimes 10,000 years, uh, sometimes other numbers as well. But they'll argue that during that time, it is impossible that there could have been enough time for evolution to take shape. And so therefore evolution is a scientific lie. Um, it is, you know, it's fabricated um, in such a way to deceive people. That becomes a cultural conflict between modernists and fundamentalists. And that's one of the reasons why a second ago I wanted to map out some of the political landscape as well, because we can take that political landscape and link it directly to these ideas. Republicans eventually begin to associate themselves with fundamentalists, and they tend to see the truth as one thing. And again, if you study hard enough, if you work hard enough, you will find the truth. This could be a biblical, religious truth, or it could be the truth of, you know, work. If everybody just works hard enough, things will improve. Um, you know, everybody has the same opportunities, that kind of thing. Versus the ideas of modernism, the, the uh, multiplicity of these things, the paradoxes um, are tend to be mapped onto democratic ideals. Uh, they tend to look at the plurality of voices, which is one of the reasons why um, they tend to be associated with, you know, progressive, well, more progressive movements in the sense of things like uh, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and things of that nature, because they do tend to see the, again, the plurality of voices and the paradoxical nature of public discourse, both in, again, religion and also in uh, politics. So what does this mean? I mean, what do we even do with this information? And uh, I put this at the end of the course. I always deliberately talk about religion at the very end of the course because I think that this is a good jumping off point. I think it's a, a, a time that I can call your attention to everything that we've studied and everything that we've discussed in this podcast and say that, you know, all the information that we've covered applies directly to the present moment. Um, the, the mapping onto the political parties, the, the way in which these parties see the truth, again, as a, a single thing or as a multiplicity and a contradiction, um, applies into the present. We have uh, manifestations of both. And I would say, you know, some of the mega churches and mega preachers out there, people like Jerry Falwell. Um, Jerry Falwell, you know, was so dedicated to this idea of a single truth that he um, helped to create a, a university dedicated to that truth. And this is Liberty University. You can go and get advanced degrees there. Um, but they they see the education process as one in which they are educating Christians to go out into the world and to take on these, these advanced roles. Um, but Jerry Falwell is the same type of individual who, uh, for example, after 9-11, this video is readily available on YouTube, um, went on TV the day after 9-11 on 9 2001 and said that 9-11 happened because of, of gay people and because of uh, people getting abortions. He said that, you know, I, I point the finger at you. Those were his words. So he sees, again, the truth in the sense of, you know, if, if people just would follow the thing that I'm telling them, then none of this would have happened. It's that multiplicity. And so there's a there's a kind of uh, fanged remark there, I guess, that that illustrates how virulent, how virulently people are disagreeing with each other on these two different sides. Um, you know, and this is, by the way, not to say that everybody does. We have more moderate type of fundamentalists, people like uh, Billy Graham. Um, Billy Graham was uh, a man who 
attempted to reach across the aisle. He met with other religious leaders across the entire world. Uh, but, you know, for every Billy Graham, there's also a Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson uh, falls in line somewhat with uh, uh, Jerry Falwell. And so with that background and, you know, some of the other ideas that are coming out, things like uh, the, the books on Armageddon that came out a, a couple of years ago, uh, the Armageddon series, I should say, uh, Tim LaHaye, uh, for example, he, you know, he wrote this with, uh, let's see, Jerry Jenkins, I believe it was. And so these are sort of a, like a celebration of that singular idea of there's only one truth. And uh, they see themselves as true Christians and they call into question whether anybody else is. And um, again, continuing into the present, coming down to the uh, 2010, uh, 2010s and really going into the 2020s, I'm making this this episode at the, uh, the, well, the very end of 2021. And uh, I mean, we, we all know what happened at the start of uh, 2021. The, the, those sorts of things are a manifestation of the ongoing conflict between the two sides. This you know, kicked into gear really in something like the 1980s. It rolled over into the 1990s. It certainly continued into the 2000s. There was a, a brief moment there after 9-11 when it seemed like people could come together, but then it began to splinter yet again because of some of the uh, decisions made by political leaders. And again, with all the information that I've covered inside of this podcast, I hope you can see how the culture of the South is tied into this. This is why I want to end on this note, because it gives you something to look back on and to think, okay, how does the economy affect this? How do writers influence this? How does you know the how do gender roles influence this? I mean, even the act of me talking about the distinction between sex and gender is controversial because this is a terminology that's oftentimes associated with modernist ideas and is seen as offensive to those in a more fundamentalist type of community. Um, it's a risk I'm willing to take because I, I think that this terminology is very useful. But if you go back and listen to that episode, you can see that I'm attempting to make sure that I'm, I clearly present these ideas and that I show that they are not offensive ideas. And it's for that very reason. So our understanding of the history of race um, is now seen as well as a political act. Uh, there's some debate in the public sphere about whether we should be even teaching or talking about this stuff. Um, you know, people disagree with the, me teaching about this or me talking about it. They say that you know we should just let it let it alone. Again, I would trace this back to religion and to politics and to uh, several decades now of this conflict between these two different sides. And that means that we're drawing to the end of this episode. And I just want to repeat something that I've you know, alluded to a couple times already. And that is in sharing this information. My goal is not to you know, convince anybody otherwise. It is simply to provide the information so that you understand the background. It's to give an overview so that that way you can dig into further resources. Um, the only thing I would like to say at the end, honestly, if I have any any goal, anything that I want to convince you of, it is that this is a very complicated situation and that the best thing that you can do as a listener, as a student, as a human being, is to begin reading about it. And make sure that you read um, the perspective of others. Don't just read the people that agree with you. Go and listen. Um, and listening involves you know, sitting still and being quiet and hearing what they're saying and being able to process it. Uh, you may purulently disagree with them, uh, but I would say that it is it behooves you to go and just listen and to make sure that you absorb and that you try to reflect on it as much as possible. 
this conversation and this uh, schism between the two different sides is not going to get better with people simply, you know, continuing the patterns that we've had for decades. And so, again, my goal in this entire podcast is to give that overview, but to try to give enough information to get people really on both sides to be able to hear people on the other side, because that is the only way that we're going to be able to to move this forward. Okay, that does bring me to the end. And uh, so let's go ahead and wrap up. This final episode of content um, has given you a broad overview of what religion is in the, the American South, and it's given you some information on how religion manifests into the lives of people and why there is such a conflict, really, in the larger American culture, but how that conflict uh, manifests from the American South. The American South is currently associated with the Republican Party, largely, and uh, it's associated with more fundamentalist uh, style ideas, but at least you can understand how they came about and what the central conflict is at heart. I want to yet again encourage you, go out, do more reading, learn about this more, um, you know, get as many books as possible. Uh, this is not just one thing. I've given you so much information, but there's still so much more to learn. Um, even in all the time I've been doing this course, where this podcast is coming from, I still constantly learn new things. And um, so I want to encourage you to do the same. This is a process of lifelong learning. And this is this podcast again is the first step for you. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Um, I'm going to wrap up here. I'm probably going to do one more episode just to kind of editorialize, like I did with the other season, the other um, English 231. But we'll we'll see. All right, see you.